This is Monday Morning QB, August 2nd, 2021. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, the expiration of the pandemic eviction ban means many, many, many more people will be made homeless. Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, the axis of decolonization in the West. Terrible losses of life at Indian boarding schools. Balancing our hours on the job and help us raise $500 this morning to support WPFW. pandemic-related U.S. government ban on residential evictions expired over the weekend, putting millions of American renters at risk of being forced from their homes. At the same time, a new report reveals how an acute lack of affordable housing will make it even tougher for people who are evicted to find a new place to live. Sue Goodwin reports. The report is called Out of Reach 2021, The High Cost of Housing, and it was released just over two weeks ago by the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Among its key conclusions is that full-time workers who earn the state or federal minimum wage cannot afford to rent a two-bedroom home anywhere in the country. Those same workers can afford a one-bedroom rental in only 7% of all U.S. counties. Daniel Threat is a research analyst with the National Low Income Housing Coalition and one of the lead authors. And as he explains, to reach those conclusions, the report uses what it calls a housing wage to represent what a full-time worker would need to earn in order to actually afford rent and utilities at fair market rent in their region. There are two critical components of the housing wage. First, following federal housing policy guidelines, we define affordability as being able to occupy a home without having to spend more than 30% of one's income on rent and utilities. And we get an estimate of the price of rental housing across the country by relying on the Department of Housing and Urban Development's fair market rents. Fair market rents are based on surveys of what people are actually paying, and they reflect the price of somewhat older rental homes below the middle of the market. So these are not luxury rents. The 30% of income standard Threat refers to is a widely used and accepted measure of housing affordability. According to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Households paying over 30% of their income on housing are considered cost-burdened. Households paying over 50% are considered severely cost-burdened. And, as Dan Threat explains, with that comes some very severe consequences. There is research that suggests that, especially for lower-income households, being housing cost-burdened or spending more than 30% of one's income on housing can force cutbacks on other basic necessities like food, medical care, transportation, or education for one's children. A survey in Los Angeles a few years ago found that cost-burdened renters were cutting back for years on their food budget, a literal realization of the idea that the rent eats first. It probably also goes without saying, but households that are on such tight budgets also have less ability to save, which can prevent them from improving their circumstances and leave them at the mercy of unexpected expenses or emergencies like a pandemic. So if minimum wage isn't enough to make a housing wage, what is? According to the Out of Reach report, on average, a renter in search of a modest two-bedroom home who is seeking to stay within the 30% income window needs to earn $24.90 an hour, more than 3.4 times the federal minimum wage. Those in search of a one-bedroom home need to make $20.40 per hour. Of course, that varies by region. In Washington, D.C., someone working full-time would need to make $33.94 an hour to afford a two-bedroom rental. And then there is New York. In the New York City metro this year, one needs to earn $34.63 an hour to afford a modest one-bedroom rental home. 
or $39.48 an hour to afford a two-bedroom home. So with these kinds of numbers, we are hardly talking about only minimum wage workers when we talk about who cannot afford to pay for housing. As Dan Threet explains, this is a pervasive problem for many lower-wage workers across the country in a broad range of employment. We found this year, looking at Bureau of Labor Statistics data, that 11 of the 20 most common occupations in the country have median hourly wages less than what's needed to afford a one-bedroom home. We're talking about nursing assistants, cashiers, janitors and cleaners, food service workers, retail salespeople, many of whom have been performing essential frontline services but for years haven't been paid enough to afford their homes. Faced with that reality, many low-wage workers may decide simply to work more hours. The out-of-reach report identifies why that is not a workable solution. We do calculate in the report how many hours per week, say, a minimum wage worker would need to work to be able to afford a one-bedroom. And in New York, for instance, minimum wage worker would need to work 92 hours every week just to afford a one-bedroom. Now, let's, let's assume that a healthy adult needs eight hours of sleep. At 92 hours of work a week, that leaves someone less than three hours a day for absolutely everything else, commuting, grocery shopping, basic self-care, taking care of your family, anything else. And of course, all that assumes that they can actually find that much work, which is unrealistic for many. Another important finding of the out-of-reach report is how racial and ethnic income inequality contributes to disparities in housing affordability. I think there are two aspects to this. On the wage end, we know that there is considerable income inequality by race and ethnicity as a function of hiring and promotion discrimination, but also larger structural obstacles that prevent genuine equality of opportunity. Looking just at median hourly wages by race and ethnicity, the median white worker earns enough to afford a one-bedroom rental home at the fair market rent, but the median black worker and the median Latino worker do not. On the housing end, because of decades of official and unofficial discrimination, households of color are much more likely than white households to be renters, and thus to struggle because of the dwindling supply of affordable rental homes. As a result, while 25% of white households are housing cost burdened, 41% of Latino households and 43% of black households are. The out-of-reach report does address what kind of federal policies can address this crisis, both in terms of helping renters who are currently facing this kind of hardship, but also to expand the stock of affordable housing for everyone. We need sustained government investment in a few areas. First, we need to bridge the gap between incomes and housing costs, and we can do that by expanding rental assistance. At present, only one out of every four households who are eligible for federal rental assistance actually receives it because of significant underfunding. And nearly everywhere you go in this country, you find waiting lists for assistance that are years long. That kind of assistance can expand what's affordable for renters on the private market. We also, though, need to expand the affordable housing stock and ensure that what we have is preserved. So one tool for building those homes is the National Housing Trust Fund, which directs federal resources to constructing homes that would be affordable to extremely low-income renters. At least $45 billion annually is needed. The introduction to the Out of Reach report is written by Marsha Fudge, the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Dan Threet says she is one of the reasons, among several, that he sees a window of opportunity for the current administration to advance on affordable housing. She acknowledges that the administration has an immense responsibility to ensure that we don't simply return to the pre-pandemic status quo with its widespread housing on affordability. HUD senior advisor Peggy Bailey speaks with great clarity about the urgent need for universal housing assistance. Uh, and the president's recent fiscal year 22 budget proposal called for an additional 200,000 housing choice vouchers. The American Jobs Plan also called for a significant investment in affordable housing with $45 billion for the National Housing Trust Fund and funding for public housing. We need follow-through to make those proposals a reality, and that's not just for the Biden administration, but for Congress as well. I think House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters has really led the way on this with two bills, the Housing as Infrastructure Act and the Ending Homelessness Act, that 
chart a path forward to trying to solve the housing affordability crisis. I sincerely hope the administration will throw its weight behind uh, those priorities. Dan Threet is a research analyst with the National Low Income Housing Coalition. You can read their report, Out of Reach 2021, The High Cost of Housing, at nlihc.org. That's nlihc.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Despite Joe Biden's campaign promise to do just the opposite once he was elected, the United States imposed new sanctions on the Cuban police force and two of its leaders last Friday in response to recent Cuban protests. Biden has promised Cuban American leaders even more punitive actions are coming. While the United Nations Human Rights Body criticized recent uprisings in Cuba, the UN General Assembly on June 23rd voted 184 to 2, with only the United States and Israel objecting, for the 29th consecutive year that the lopsided tally has occurred to demand an end to the U.S. economic blockade. The major U.S. allies, indeed the entire world community, opposes the U.S.-Cuba policy, which has been in effect for more than 60 years because this country is afraid of the example of Cuba's survival in the face of brutal U.S. sanctions, according to Netfa Freeman, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, who spoke to us from Managua, Nicaragua, where he traveled in a U.S. delegation celebrating the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista victory. Freeman says Cuba... Nicaragua, Venezuela, comprise the axis of decolonization in the Western Hemisphere. We're able to, to see the celebration of the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution in Managua, and it was huge, and people, uh, you know, it's not as, it was not as big as it had been before because of the pandemic, and they had to, they wanted to scale it down. But you can see the support of the people for the revolution, contrary to to the, um, the propaganda that we get about, you know, the uh, sanity, Daniel Ortega, the dictator, and the you know, unpopular and all those kind of things. And uh, and then we also were able to visit the uh, and have a talk with the uh, Ministry of Health, representative for the Ministry of Health in Esteli, uh, Nicaragua, and talk about the national health care program as well as the regional one. That, that ministry covered six, uh, um, six municipalities. And then we also talked to people about the education system, particularly how their projects that utilize um, popular education. There was the one regarding uh, adult education. We talked to some specialists about that and how these things are supported by the state. The, um, or at least I referred to Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Um, and then also you can even maybe put Bolivia in there as the, as the access, the Latin American access of decolonization. And so we really have our people there making strides and the, the U.S. government, the West, and, and you know, the, the, uh, the global north, so to speak, is doing everything they can to, to, to reframe that and make it seem like it's something that it's not because they're afraid of the example, the socialist example, which, you know, clearly the capitalist example is a failed, U.S. is a failed state on every measure. And now they're trying to flip the script and make it seem like uh, it's the reverse. The axis of decolonization, what a concept. When you mention propaganda and how propaganda has affected the way we view Nicaragua, it's also true of Cuba. If we were to study U.S. intervention in Cuba, it's really a case study for U.S. diversion and they employ these tactics. It even goes more than propaganda. Uh, and, you know, we, as far back as 1960, the United States have, the, we, you know, the declassified documents from the US National Security uh, Agency that talk about their need to foster an internal dissent, you know, against the Cuban government because it was so popular. And then they, they continue the same, you know, line uh, and the same program and intent all the way through the 60s, the 70s up until now. 
was that even in the 1990s, or 1980s rather, they started using the U.S. Agency for International Development and other uh, supposedly non-governmental organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy and Freedom House and all these, but mostly the U.S. Agency of International Development, which is a government organization, and they have a, what's known as the Cuba program. If we look at what's happening right now today, and just a few years ago, I think 2014, it was exposed, and people don't you know, have to remember, we have short memories, that the U.S. Agency for International Development was exposed for creating a Twitter type of uh, social media called Zoom Zunio. And it was specifically designed, admittedly designed by the U.S. Agency for International Development to, to, to foster uh, dissent and, and, and sway people away from Cubans, away from, and was in Cuba, away from supporting the Cuban Revolution. And so now what we're seeing now, and it's, and it's not just that they've been doing these things for a long time in terms of also co-opting Cuban citizens uh, to support and you know pass propaganda on, act like, pose like they're quote-unquote independent media, independent human rights activists, they call it independent, meaning you're not, you know, I guess you're, you're not with anything. But of course, they're not really independent because they're, you know, uh, they're bought and paid basically by the United States government. And this is treason, you know. And so what happens right now, and I know that uh, the report has been uh, like, you know, today, is how Cuba is, uh, you know, cracking down, they call this, they use the word crack down on protesters, on, you know, and that um, what they're doing really, and then this is, I don't know what this, you know, we can't say we're currently, but it, we really have to uh, judge things based on their history. Back then, and they were talking about early 2000, in the 1990s, they also had to uh, put people on trial for treason. These are treason. People have laws for treason just like any other group. And so it's not like there are people that only, uh, you know, just come out and they're concerned about social justice and standing against their, their government. They actually have to be fostered and cultivated by the U.S. government primarily. I'm not saying everyone. That, uh, that, that demonstrates or expresses some dissent with Cuba in Cuba, uh, Cubans are under this. But you can imagine with, you know, when they muddy the waters and you work these things, you know, and use these types of, uh, of mercenaries, so to speak, political mercenaries, some other people can get caught up and, and not really know what's going on and they'll be protesting. Or people just, you know, get satisfied. Things are tough in Cuba with the blockade and everything in the street. And now they want to uh, make us believe that they're concerned with people's uh, some kind of people's movement in Cuba. It just doesn't, you know, hypocrisy and the contradictions are stark. But is it possible at all that in our zeal to condemn the history of of bad behavior on the part of the United States government, that we sometimes, that it's, that we could be overlooking some things that uh, are out of kilter in Cuba and Nicaragua. I mean, obviously, no, no, no country could not make any mistake. Um, and I think that you know we have to you know evaluate things based on how they are. We want to be careful though not to accept the messaging and the framing of it, or even the the summation of what or the, you know the conclusions of why things are the way they are based on the enemies of of, of uh, Cuba. I mean, I think you know. There's, there's nothing, for example, I know recently they've made a lot about race. They try to make something about race in Cuba. Um, and there's Cuba, and, but if you examine anyone who really understands race and this hemisphere and whatnot as a result of 500 years of colonialism and enslavement against the African people and also indigenous people, you know, there's no country on earth that has been able to eradicate that situation. And if you're not looking at, if you're not looking, uh, if you're looking at Cuba through the eyes of those who don't, uh, don't evaluate honestly, you would think that any race problems in Cuba, and I think that there are Cubans that acknowledge that there are, and I know there are in Cuba in terms of race, you know, discrimination and defense, you would think those things are a product of, of the revolution as opposed to something that the revolution has just, you know, inherited and, and, and also that the revolution, Cuban revolution has done more to deal with the disparities and you know um, you know inequities um, and the the uh, you know, the, the consequences of, of racism 
um, and anti-blackness than, than any other country in the world. Right? And so because it hasn't been, you know, eliminated and that people can find some uh, some manifestations of it, we have to be careful not not to you know make the mistake and think that those are opposed to as a consequence of the revolution versus something that's persisting in spite of the revolution. And, and that's just race. But other things in terms of right now, um, they, Cuba is having to deal with the fact that um, countries like the United States will manage to get citizens of the country to do things and just stir up things. How I would deal with that if I was in power in Cuba, I don't know. But I know one thing, and then no matter what they do, the propaganda machine um, outside, they want us to view it a certain way outside the country, and they want people inside the country to view it a certain way. They're going to spin whatever, you know, whatever happens as, as negative, whether it's a just, you know, whether you agree with the, the actions or not. But we have to remember that Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela, these are people's movements that are really trying to chart a path of, of people's, you know, self-determination and anti-colonialism, uh, anti-capitalism, you know. This is, you know, this is true. That, that doesn't mean that these things are above making any kind of mistakes, but they're not inherent repressions uh, that we would, you know, that we want to make. We want to make sure we're not framing it as these are inherent repressions or inherent flaws of the system when, in fact, the United States, uh, and capitalism, any of these industrialized, it has unnecessary death and economic crisis constantly. Um, you know, both in supply chains when it comes to people being able to get food and whatnot, killer cops, mass incarceration, government surveillance, nuclear weapons, you know, I mean, mass shootings. These are, you know, normalized racism and homelessness and crumbling schools. All this stuff is like, you know, endemic to like the United States, you know, to, depression, people are living fear and suicide, just obscene disparities in income and wealth in the United States. These things don't exist in these other places to the extent that there's some forms of disparities. They're not a result of the, the Cuba's um, socialism, but they are the persistence of, you know, blockades or socialist, uh, you know, capitalist remnants and whatnot, and they're trying to overcome those things. We need to build an international movement that, that uh, does the opposite, not just in Cuba, but other places around the world. Leffa Freeman, thank you for making it clear for us. Thank you. Thank you. Leffa Freeman is a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and is host of Voices with Vision, her Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on 89.3 FM. In June, U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland launched the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative to investigate the loss of life, abuse, and intergenerational trauma associated with the Indian boarding schools in the United States. The effort will investigate the historical records of hundreds of boarding schools during a period of time that stretched from the mid-1800s into the mid-1970s. And as Sue Goodwin reports, it is an accounting that is long overdue. While the history of Indian boarding schools in the United States may be little known to many Americans, that is hardly true for those of Native ancestry. Levi Rickert is the founder, publisher, and editor of Native News Online, and he says it's a story that Native Americans have known about for a very long time. So when news broke back in May about the remains of 215 children being found on the grounds of a former Indian residential school in British Columbia, Canada, he explains why he wasn't overly shocked. I kind of looked at the headline and kind of shrugged, like, okay, we already knew this, so what? Why is this news now? And as the summer has progressed, the May turned into June and all that, um, they, they have found over 1,600 more bodies, their graves. And so this is, for the first time ever, it seems to me people are really paying attention to what's going on. 
Native News Online has already done extensive reporting on Indian boarding schools in the United States, their impact, and how widespread they were. And as they recently reported, there were 357 Indian boarding schools operating throughout the U.S. from 1819 to the 1960s. It's hard to know how many children attended the schools due to poor record-keeping, but as Native News Online reports, in the year 1925 alone, more than 60,000 children attended the schools. And as Levi Rickard explains, that was hardly ever by choice. They were forced to attend, and uh, I, I would say 90% of the students Indian children were forced to attend. However, there were some Native people who were so poor, they, and it's hard for me to really quantify this in terms of numbers, but I'm assuming it's a very small amount um, because my understanding is there were mechanisms to try to even hide their children, but some sent their children there at will because they just could not afford to feed them. Now, to understand the kind of impact these schools had on the children who attended them, it's important to understand why they began in the first place. The first federally run Indian boarding school was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. It was founded by Army Officer Richard Henry Pratt, whose stated philosophy was, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. Unquote. And the school he founded became a model for other Indian boarding schools, both in the U.S. and in Canada, where students were forbidden to express anything that connected them to their native identity, all in the interest of assimilation into white culture as opposed to their own. And in one fast way to reduce culture in any group is to take away their language and and of course they went there the boys their hair had to be cut they could not have the long hair as their as our ancestors wore it and because of that it was it was a uh, situation that they really felt like if they were to strip our people of our culture and put white man's clothing on them that everything would be okay that they would be assimilated into population once they got out of school as for what kind of living conditions these children had to endure, that has been long documented. In 1928, what is known as the Miriam Report was compiled by what is now known as the Brookings Institution, and it gave a scathing summary of what it was like to live in Indian boarding schools in the United States, where conditions ranged from malnourishment and exposure to disease to outright abuse. So they did not have adequate food. The health care was horrible. The dormitories were crowded and overpopulated. So the conditions were very poor, and that's separate from the disciplinary needs that some of these children had to live through. Speaking to that kind of abusive discipline, Levi Rickert tells the story of an elder he spoke with who made the mistake of speaking in his native tongue with his cousins while attending an Indian boarding school. He and his cousins were made to clean the tile grout in this large latrine for the boys' latrine where the showers were. And they had to clean the grout tile by tile, in one end to the other, when they got done, they had to restart it. And by the time the morning came, their their knees were all bloody. And so that was something that this elder told me like decades after it happened. And so it was very traumatic. And it's trauma that doesn't just have an impact on the individual who experienced life in an Indian boarding school. That's why one of the goals of the new federal initiative will be to further understand how this kind of trauma gets passed on from one generation to the next. Remember, these children were separated from their own parents for years and often lived in settings where there was very little affection. Levi Rickert describes what that meant for some children as they became parents themselves. I have actually witnessed grown adults cry when they recount how their parents did not know how to love because they went to boarding schools. And 
they will say, I was never given a hug. My mother did not know how to love me because she was in boarding school. And so that, those those types of interactions, those interpersonal relationships, they just were properly formed. And so what's happened is the, the boarding school period actually yielded a bunch of dysfunctional families among the American Indians. And that is not to say anything disparaging against my people, but it was the result of we were victims. And so with that, the intergenerational trauma exists today, and many experts will say that's why you have high rates of suicide, high rates of alcoholism, and some of the health conditions that we live in. We have some of the highest health disparities in any racial ethnic group living in the United States, and many people attribute it right back to those conditions and the relationships that were formed and maybe not formed during the uh, boarding school period. So given what we already know and what more may be uncovered by the new initiative, Levi Rickert describes at least one outcome he hopes to see happen, which is that his community can receive the kind of assistance it needs to heal from this history. I will say this, we are very resilient people, very strong people, but sometimes that strength is masked through what we call Indian humor, and we've gotten through it. But right now, I I think more drastic things have got to take place where I would think that the government needs to send trained counselors, and, and we have many fine counselors in our own ranks who can maybe help come in and do some mental wellness trainings among our Indian communities because it's very, very important. So we need to get past it. And Levi Rickert is hopeful that can happen. His most recent piece on the Federal Boarding School Initiative describes it as a promising step towards truth and healing. And, as he explains, a significant part of his hope comes from having in Deb Holland, a Secretary of the Interior who is Native American herself. Here we have somebody for the first time who can, at such a high level in the federal government, who cares about our people, because she experienced it. She she experienced it through her own family. Her grandparents were sent off to boarding schools. And so I will say this, that I have high regard for President Biden for bringing in Deb Holland. As for Native News Online, they have committed to continue their reporting on this issue with what Levi Rickert describes as a deep dive into the Indian boarding school experience. To that end, they want to hear from Native Americans across the country who have their own stories to share about this tragic history. And I I encourage any of the listeners to please reach out to us at Native News Online, whether it's through telephone calls and uh, go to WW Native News Online and you'll be able to get our contact information. But we want to hear the stories. We want to tell our stories. It's our time to tell our stories. And I'm a strong believer, and that's why I started Native News Online over 10 years ago, is that it's our time to tell our stories. And yes, there are fine journalists who are not Native, but why not? deal with the Native community journalists who are willing to tell the stories and we are willing to publish them and uh, get the word out. Levi Rickard is the founder, publisher, and editor of Native News Online. To read more about their work on Indian boarding schools in the United States and support it, visit nativenewsonline.net. That's nativenewsonline.net. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. As the global economy recovers from its latest recession, the way we work and live is changing before our very eyes. One work-life experiment to capture recent headlines is a study in Iceland that shortened working hours without reducing pay. 
The success of that trial is inspiring some to reimagine how and how much we work. Chris Banger Drowns reports. The Iceland study confirmed what many had expected. When workers got more time off the job with no dip in pay, quality of life went up. Workers in the trial experienced reductions in job-related stress and burnout and spent more time on exercise, social interaction, and childcare. Importantly, this improvement happened without any reduction in worker productivity or output, something of an economic miracle. Juliet Shore is an economist and professor of sociology at Boston College, and has written extensively on the question of overwork and the four-day work week. Author of the classic The Overworked American, Shore explains why discourse around labor in the U.S. is so centered on income rather than time. It's a really interesting question why in the U.S. we don't talk about working hours much in comparison, say, to Europeans for whom working hours reductions have been very much on the table since the second half of the 20th century as they were in the U.S. earlier. So we were actually the sort of lead country on reducing work hours from those really long hours of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, We were the first to get Sundays off, Saturdays off, and so forth. After the Second World War, there was a shift toward a, a much more consumerist culture in which yes, we began to focus much more on money than time. And so it became part of both the political discourse, the way people organize their lives, and the growing importance of consuming in American culture. And there are other details to it, but I, I think it's right that there was a sort of mid 20th century shift in the US away from not just working hours, but also quality of life issues, much more to quantity of stuff, you know, to put it in a sort of pithy little axiom. Now, Iceland's study didn't involve a true four-day work week, right? It was more of a half-day reduction with pay staying consistent. And yet, even with that small reduction in hours, there still seemed to be substantial improvements to work-life balance with no noticeable reduction to productivity or economic output. And this last piece is really interesting, I think, especially to non-economists. And can you explain then why it's possible for working hours to be reduced without productivity and output being reduced? Yes, yeah, so there's there's been a lot of attention in the media lately about going to four days of work with five days of pay. And One of the reasons that advocates of this shift say it's possible is because they argue you can do five days of work in in four days. And there are a lot of reasons to think why that might be true in many workplaces. And white collar workplaces are the obvious place to look for that because they have, in comparison, say, to manufacturing facilities, which have already been pretty sped up in in many parts of the world and where work intensity is high and where I think it's a lot harder to do this. In white collar work, you have too many meetings, too much email. The uh, pilots that have been done in places like Microsoft in Japan, you know, the widely reported on Perpetual Guardian Insurance Company in New Zealand. Um, work, the, the, the shift to a four-day week was accompanied by work reorganization that pretty much took out the low productivity stuff. People were willing to work more intensively on those four days because they were getting the benefit of a day off and they weren't losing pay. One of the other interesting observed benefits from the Iceland study was an improved gender balance uh, in housework, uh, at least for heterosexual couples. Was this a benefit that you anticipated? And should we expect it to stick around or, or rather peter out as you know, old sexist habits return? Well, 
advocates of shorter hours do typically say we could get a better gender distribution of work. And one of the reasons why is that men typically have longer working hours than women. And so it, it is harder for them to do household work. So if you reduce male hours, you may get a better balance, which is what they found in Iceland. Will it persist? It depends. I mean, I think the idea that there's this sort of unchanging sexist division of labor is wrong because we have seen actually a fair amount of change in the distribution of household labor. We're not at equality and we've seen more change in some areas than others, you know, more in childcare than in sort of cleaning and, you know, some of the really less desirable types of household work. Two possibilities that might take us in the other direction. If men get a whole day off, do they take that day to earn more money? In which case the answer to will the gender distribution of household labor improve is probably going to be no. And it might even get worse if they're taking on a second job. Two, does the fact that women workers will have a full day to do household labor mean that they just might do more of it? Because many, particularly full-time women with caring responsibilities, children and so forth, end up having to curtail their household labor because their paid labor goes up so much. And there may be things that they would prefer to do, but they don't have time to do them. So you could also see their labor expanding. So how that will affect the balance between the sexes is, I think, a little bit of an open question. You know, it, it might seem odd that we're we're discussing the problem of overwork during a recession when the big macroeconomic problem is is underemployment and unemployment. But you've made the point that the solutions to these two problems are linked. How can we reduce overwork and reduce unemployment at the same time? Yeah, they're linked because the phenomena themselves are linked. You know, what I found when I began to study working hours was you had a majority whose working hours were going up and they were becoming increasingly overworked. And then you had a minority, but a growing group who were underworked, couldn't get enough work, underemployed and increasingly underemployed. So, uh, you know, people who where the, the gap between the hours they could get and the hours they want was growing. And that's that you, you find that in recessions. I mean, often what happens is firms will lay some people off, but then they'll ask the people who still have jobs to work even more. And it becomes harder for those people to resist those pressures for more work because they're grateful to have a job. So in a recession, you can reduce everybody's working hours to keep everybody employed. That's what's called short-time working. And in the financial crash of 2008 and the recession, the Europeans did a lot of this. They put people on short schedules and then they would have some unemployment insurance that would make it up. So instead of working your 38 hour week, maybe you're working a 32, but you were still getting some compensation for those six hours that you lost. So nobody got laid off. I mean, of course, some people, but you know, like, that, that's one solution, which is to keep the people on and reduce their hours. So you spread the unemployment equally. In the United States, we didn't do that. People just got laid off and the people who remained kept working the same number of hours, roughly. You know, taking a step back here, when we're talking about reduced work hours and the according increase in leisure time, that leisure time isn't just spent you know, watching television or Netflix. Um, Part of that leisure time could be spent on civic activities, which kind of begs the question, how, how would a truly shortened work week shape political organizations and our modes of political expression in the U.S.? I think it's hard to say. It's been so long since we've had a major shift, you know, reduction in working hours. Um, one of the things we can say is that if you look at the first half of the 20th century, where there was a very rapid decline in working hours, it, you know, that also ushered in a generation of people who turned out to be extremely civically minded. And, you know, they're very high levels of civic participation, which continued into the post-war era. With the work week, 
reduction stalling out and the growth of working hours, particularly on a household basis, you had a, a significant period of time squeeze in which you know many people just really don't have time to devote to civic engagement. I would say that the pandemic experience where you had many people at home with uh, fewer work responsibilities or more ability to control their time and commuting down and so forth, you know, led to a period in which you had a lot of civic engagement. So it's conceivable that that period of last summer's very high levels of protest activity, but also the um, election, you know, a lot of activity around the election that, uh, you know, time availability may turn out to be an increasingly important factor in that. I mean, in the end, it's also having a compelling politics. You know, there has to be something that people feel is really worth getting engaged in. Juliet Shore economist and professor of sociology at Boston College. She is author of several books, the most recent being After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked, and How to Win It Back. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. We end the show today with another attempt to document the events of January 6th, when hundreds of supporters of twice-impeached, one-term former President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol. Republican lawmakers have attempted to erase the violence of that day, calling the riot a normal tourist visit. Here, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn offers his experience to the House Committee investigating the attack. More and more insurrectionists were pouring into the area by the Speaker's lobby near the rotunda, and some wearing MAGA hats and shirts that said Trump 2020. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response they yelled, no man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded. Well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink. MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, Other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his his entire 40 years of life, been called a nigger to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, put your gun down, and we'll show you what kind of nigger you really are. To be candid, the rest of the afternoon is a blur. But I know I went throughout the Capitol to assist officers who needed aid and help expel more insurrectionists. In the crypt, I encountered Sergeant Gunnell, who was giving assistance to an unconscious woman who had been in the crowd of rioters on the west side of the Capitol. I helped to carry her to the area of the House Majority Leader's office where she was administered CPR. As the afternoon wore on, I was completely drained, both physically and emotionally, and in shock and total disbelief over what had happened. Once the building was cleared, I went to the rotunda to recover with other officers 
and share our experiences from what happened that afternoon. Representative Rodney Davis was there offering support to officers. And when he and I saw each other, he came over and he gave me a big hug. I sat down on a bench in the rotunda with a friend of mine who was also a black Capitol Police officer and told him about the racial slurs I endured. I became very emotional and began yelling, how the blank could something like this happen? Is this America? I began sobbing. Officers came over to console me. Later on January 6th, after order and security had been restored in the Capitol through the hard work and sacrifices of law enforcement, members took the floor of the House to speak out about what had happened that day. Among them was House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who along with my fellow officers, I had protected that day and will protect today and tomorrow. And the Minority Leader, to his great credit, said the following to the House, the violence, destruction, and chaos we saw earlier was unacceptable, undemocratic, and un-American. It was the saddest day I've ever had serving in this institution, end quote. Members of the select committee, the minority leader was absolutely right. How he described what took place in the Capitol. And for those of us in the Capitol Police who serve and revere this institution and who love the Capitol building, it was the saddest day for us as well. And that's our show for today. Don't forget you can still contribute to WPFW and Monday Morning QB. Call us 1-800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org. Or you can even cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Please contribute now. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.